Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Happy Father's Day. You know, um, I'm going to be preaching on paradigms, and that's one of the paradigms that uh, really uh, struck my heart, and Greg talked about it also, that for fathers, the paradigm is that you think all this weight is on you. And when you see your kids going through hard times and feel like they don't know what life is about, you can take that on to yourself and, and start questioning, what am I doing wrong? But God's paradigm says he's their father. And you just rest in him and you let him do what he do. And what he do is so good <laughs> that you almost can't believe it. I know Larry and I struggled for quite a few years trying to figure out what's the right thing. How do we reach our kids? What are we doing wrong? Are we doing anything right? And in desperation, after quite a few years, God told us to go plant a garden and to just see our kids the way he saw them. And he had us plant these five different beautiful flowers. And he'd have us just go sit out there and meditate on the beauty of our children. So he took our eyes off of the cornal things that were going on, and he gave us his paradigm, his perspective, and it changed everything for us. And you know, God was there being a father to our kids the whole time. We just didn't realize it. We could have rested through that whole difficult time frame, but at least we rested at the end and we got to watch God do what he do. And as you can see, he did a beautiful thing. So the title of uh, the sermon today is No Longer Tossed To and Fro. And like Greg said, we've just been building. And this thing has really been building and it started when Mo preached. <laughs> and um, I had never really thought about the word paradigm before, but something just resonated when he preached and it got bigger and bigger and bigger in me. And pretty soon, it just seemed like instead of me grabbing it, it had grabbed me. And I started seeing paradigms everywhere, every day, seeing um, God was always showing me, well, this is how you see it, but this is how I see it. This is how you look at this, but this is how I look at it. And I began to realize that God's, his desire to be one with us is that we would see things the way he sees them, that we would be able to rest in his life instead of struggling in our own. When we look at things through our eyes, it can really be tough here. You know, there's a lot of sin and death in this world, and it can be hard, but when we see things through God's perspective and we see what he sees, rest and peace and love is what starts bubbling up. So I just wanna pray really quick. Father, I just thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that uh, you see that we're living in a fallen world. You see the things that come up against us. I thank you that you're always one step ahead, that you've already beaten and conquered sin and death for us, and that you're there to show us your perspective and how you see things. I thank you, Lord, for open ears and open hearts this morning. Amen. So before I go any further, I want to uh, remind you again what a paradigm is. It's something that you use spiritually or in life to operate in this world. It's a way that you perceive life 
that has worked for you in the past. And because it appears that it's worked for you in the past, you think it must be the right way. It's a standard, a perspective, or a set of ideas. It's a way you look at something. And the last time I preached, I showed you a jar of water. Well, there are two perspectives, two paradigms here. You might see it half full, or you might see it half empty. That's an example of a paradigm. It's just the way you look at things. It's a way of believing in your heart that is so much a part of you that you live out of it without even realizing it. Now, when you looked at that cup of water, you didn't have to say, uh, do I see that half full or do I see that half empty? It just happened. And so that's what paradigms are. You live out of the beliefs in your heart and you don't even realize what's happening and the effect that they have on your life until God starts showing you. <laughs> and he started showing me. So we're going to talk about two major paradigms, man's paradigm and God's paradigm. This morning, again, I'm going to put these two paradigms side to side next to each other so you can get a clear view of their makeup, what they offer you, and if they bring you life or if they bring you death. The Bible is full of these paradigms. They are put on display so we'll know where we get life and where death comes to us. So we have the two paradigms. Our hearts were created to experience life. Can you hold that up for a second, Mom? Sorry, people are watching. Oh, okay, not high enough. No, no, for one second so they can see what the yeah. paradigm is. Put it back down up a little bit. Okay. So, sure, we can trust God for life or we can trust ourselves for life. Now, we usually don't realize that we're trusting ourselves for life even when we're doing it until God comes and shows us. <laughs> but our hearts were created to experience life. So it's reasonable that our hearts are going to seek after life and go after it. The problem isn't that we want life. The problem is that there's a false life that was introduced into the world through the serpent. It's a counterfeit, and it looks good, but it's really deadly. It tries to engage our self-effort, our own works, to get life. It's busy persuading our hearts to get life from this world. Two weeks ago, I mentioned the American dream as a paradigm. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into that because it affects us so much here. It's a set of standards for a good life, and it's a way of looking at life. This outlook on life puts us on a track to attain financial wealth, successful status, the house, the spouse, the children, the promotions that we want. It tries to instill a lack in us if we don't have those things. And when that lack comes, it tries to birth lust in us. Even our economy uses the American dream to assure us that life is found in material things and status. It offers us lack and takes advantage of that feeling. 
It tries to convince us that if we don't have the latest gadget, that we're missing out on life. This paradigm is presented to us in a very pretty package with fancy bows, but it has intertwined itself in the gospel, and that makes it very dangerous. Somehow, the church has put the American dream and mixed it with the gospel so that God becomes an avenue for us to be able to access that successful life that we want, not in the spiritual realm, but in the carnal realm. And that's when it becomes very dangerous. It actually can distract us from what the true gospel is. And that's what happened to me, even though I didn't realize it. Its promises are empty and full of vanity. We repeatedly see people that have attained to the American dream. They have worked hard. They have crawled to the top. They have money. They have fame. They have the world's honor. And yet many of them are depressed. They become dependent on alcohol and drugs and even commit suicide. Why? Because they worked so hard for this system to get what they wanted in this world and it didn't satisfy them when they got everything that they thought they wanted. It didn't make them whole. It didn't fill them with God's life, which is really what they were striving for. They just didn't know it. All it could give them was death because that's all it had. This world system is full of sin and death. I'm not saying it's wrong to have those things, to have the house, to have money, and to enjoy those things. The problem is when we think that that's what we need for life. When we think the American dream is our source for life, then we have a problem. When we set our affections on the things of this earth instead of the things above, we are actually living in a form of death. The Pharisees in early church had this same type of paradigm in their hearts also, even though they weren't living in the American dream. They valued the wealthy people and despised the poor. They gave the best seats in the synagogue to the rich people. And the poor people were given the back seats and maybe not even the seats at all. They looked at wealth as a sign of God's acceptance and poverty as a sign of God's rejection. And you know, we can look at that and say that is so ridiculous, but I've been in a spiritual system that taught that in a little bit different way. But if you're rich, it's because you have done everything God wanted you to do. Therefore, he has blessed you financially. And if you haven't done everything that God wanted you to do, he has withheld financial blessing from you. They actually call it being robbed, that you've robbed God, and so now he's taken from you. What a sad thing to be thinking of our Heavenly Father. God confronts this attitude in James, labeling it as not having the faith of Jesus with respect of persons. God didn't bring this correction because he was mad at them. He loved them and he confronted their beliefs because he wanted them to be set free from this paradigm, which was bringing all of them death. When we move from man's thinking to God's thinking, 
you could call it a paradigm shift. Let's face it, we all want immortality, don't we? That's the kind of life we want. We might not have always expressed it that way, but we all want a life that can't be taken away from us. Is there anything you found in this world system that can't be taken away from you? Can a new car, a new house, or a promotion be taken away from you? Mm. Can any of those things bring you out of the grave? Can any of those things give you immortality? Then those things won't satisfy your heart for the life that you desire. We don't have to go looking all over the place in the world for life like the American dream has taught us. Get the job, get the house, get the car, get the this, get the that. It's only found in one person. The life that you want is only found in one person. 1 Timothy 1.17 says it like this. Now unto the, king, unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the only person that possesses eternal life within himself. And that guy adores you. That guy wants to give you everything that he has and everything that he is. He wants to give you eternal life and as a free gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it. What a deal. Only one place. Only one person. That means there's no other source for the life that you want. Do you know what that means? Your search is over. You can stop looking for life every which way in every place. And if you've already trusted in Jesus for life, it's already living inside of you. Luke 11.34 says, the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is single, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is evil, your body also is full of darkness. That word eye is what we see, how we see it. It could be called a paradigm. That word single means braided as one, folded together properly. When our paradigm is properly braided together with God's, we become flooded with his light and life. When we only look for life in one place, one person, and it's God, then our eye is single. So there are two different perspectives here, a healthy or single perspective and a sick perspective. One is focused only on God for life. It is single. The eye that is evil, that word evil is diseased. Listen to this, degeneracy from the original virtue. Mm. It has been corrupted from God's original design for us. It means to toil for life. When our eye is evil, it is toiling in many places to find life. When our eye is single and full of light, 
we're resting in God as our only source of light and life. We're going to take a few looks um, at some paradigms that is um, you can find that are prevalent in the church as a whole. I know they were prevalent in my life, and I needed to be set free from them. We're going to look at the paradigm of fear versus awe. In God, there is no fear. We know that. Fear is the fruit of death. It can't come from God because he doesn't have it. God is love, and perfect love casts out fear. So how is it that so many Christians that love God actually are afraid of him and have been taught that many of these scriptures that say, fear the Lord, they actually interpret it as being afraid of God. It can manifest in lots of different ways. Fear that God is not pleased with us. Fear that he's mad at us. Fear that we haven't done enough for him. Do you remember that one? Mm. Fear he will take from us because we didn't tithe. Fear of his rebuke. Fear of him exposing us and humiliating us. And I'm talking about the big TV screen and the sweet by and by that so many people are taught that when they get up there and they see God, there's going to be this big 3D TV screen and it's going to show everything that you've thought, everything that you've done, all those things that God says he forgot. How could that show up on a big TV screen if it's forgotten and gone? Exactly. (laughs) There are so many scriptures about fearing God. I'm going to read just two of them to you. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you see that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That tells us how important this is. But if people think that that's saying you need to be afraid of God and you better be sure you do everything right and not do anything wrong, they think that's the beginning of knowledge. When it's actually the knowledge that comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That word fear means reverence or awe of something or someone. That is why there are so many scriptures about the fear of God. There are so many reasons for us to be in awe of him and reverence him as we realize more and more everything that he's done for us. His love, his life, his wisdom, his adoration for us is so amazing. He is worthy of awe and reverence. And it's not something that we work up. It's just a response in our heart to who he is to us. This isn't talking about being afraid that he would hurt us or reject us in any way. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him in those that hope in his mercy. There is no fear, the afraid kind of fear in God. 
Fear is the fruit of death. It can't come from God. Fear is God's enemy, just as it is ours. So how could God take pleasure in us being afraid of him? It, that's what that scripture says. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him. I've been taught that scripture. I was taught to fear, to be afraid of God because you never knew what he was going to do. Mm. Never knew what he was going to do. One of my pastors, he would put his finger out like that and he says, it's, you're just like, he's just going to flick you off his finger. One day he's happy with you, but the next, whoop, you did something. You're out of his good graces. How can you rest when that, with that belief in your heart? You can't. God's character has been maligned, and so many people have judged his actions through the eyes of fear instead of love. Much of the church still reacts to God as Adam and Eve did in the garden when they ran and hid from him. They know God through this false paradigm that he judges our behavior and punishes us. When I talk about the wrong teachings that are in the church, I'm not speaking against the people that teach them. They are precious and they love God very much. They're caught up in the wrong system because that's what they were taught and they don't realize it yet. That's why God has raised up many people to preach how good he is so the world can know. As we listen to the preaching of the true gospel, our paradigms become changed. Our wisdom goes from being carnal to God's wisdom, from darkness to light. God wants to open our eyes so we can see who he is and who we are. When that happens, we can see things the way he sees things. Jared Thompson preached a sermon titled, Forgiven From What? in October. He used a scenario about a father and a slave owner to describe the two contrasting paradigms. I thought it was so good, it really touched my heart. I wanted to um, bring it up again. A father had a son who was kidnapped and brought to another country and sold into slavery. The slave owner was angry with the boy if he disobeyed him or broke any rules, and if he tried to escape. He was full of accusations against the boy. His mindset was anger towards him and wanted to punish the boy. The slave owner is kind of a picture of Satan, who is our accuser and always tries to keep us in bondage. What about the father? Was the father angry with his son if he disobeyed one of the slave owner's rules? No. Do you think he was angry at the son for trying to escape the bondage he was in? No. The father had a totally different perspective than the slave owner. The father understood that his son was desperate to escape the bondage that he was in. He was never angry at anything the son did to try to escape. Our father understands why we tried to escape the death in this world. He knows we weren't created to experience this death. He understands 
when we do things to try to escape its grip on us. Even when those things bring us more death, he understands his heart is for us. But somehow we got the slave owner and God mixed up. We thought God was the one that was judging us and accusing us and punishing us. The power of the gospel is the paradigm shifter. As we continue to hear the truth about who our Heavenly Father is, our carnal paradigms begin to melt away and we find ourselves living in God's wisdom in his life. With that in mind, we're going to take another look at a paradigm. This one is going to be contrasting resting in God or chasing after God. Part of the church teaches that we need to chase after God, experiences, his power, visions, and that we should keep seeking those things to get closer to God. You're given the strong impression that as you seek those things harder and harder, that is going to give you a better relationship with God. They teach you to be hungry for God and desperate for him. It's easy to get, up, get caught up in this paradigm. At least it was for me. But you can see what's going on. I would have never fallen for that if I didn't believe I lacked. I believe I lacked in my relationship with God. I didn't think I was good enough for him because I thought he was judging me my, by my behavior. So I was taught that if I wasn't pleasing to God, the way to be pleasing to him is to chase after him, to go after him. When you're taught that God is withholding something from you because you haven't chased after him hard enough, you really become tempted to be a God chaser. And that's what I was, a God chaser. I know I said a couple of weeks ago, I don't really enjoy traveling, but let me tell you, I travel to chase God. And where the things were that they told me I needed to chase, I was there. Didn't matter what the hardship was, just because I wanted to be closer to God. I wanted to be closer to God. The truth is, God was already inside of me. Where did I have to run to get him? I could stay in my house. I could stay in my bed. <laughs> he was with me already. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Have you ever seen a dog chase its tail? Does the dog really need to do that? The tail is connected to him already. It's just a part of the dog. Well, God has intertwined his being with us. We are braided together with him, never to be separated. We don't need to chase after God. The truth is, he chases after us. He brought Jesus to the earth as a baby before you were ever born. He was chasing after you. Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead before you were ever born. That was God chasing after you before you ever knew him. He's already living inside of you. You can rest knowing that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. 
You have everything you need in Jesus. You have everything you need in Jesus. There is no need to go running to and fro, trying to find something when you already have it. In my chasing after God days, I got caught up in many things that weren't God, but I didn't realize it for many years. There was a lot of glitter, you know, gold dust, and everyone wanted more. No matter how long and how much I hungered, I never was satisfied. Now, you would think that would have given me a little clue. The clue that I got was that I still wasn't chasing hard enough. I still wasn't hungering hard enough after God. And so I continued in my quest, harder and harder, more and more. Instead of coming away with the thing that I desired from God, what I found more and more in my heart was, he must be so displeased with me. Because I would watch all these other people having all these awesome experiences, and I didn't always get them. And so I would go home thinking, honest, y'all. I would go home that night thinking, what did I do today that made God upset? Did I not pray long enough? You know, did I not do this? Did I not do that? Did I do something? It was a horrible way to live. But the reason that I wasn't satisfied, besides that that was empty, is I was looking for validation from God in all the wrong places. I was looking at manifestations to tell me whether I was pleasing to God or not, whether he was happy with me. And if I did experience something one day, the next day, I was already needing to be assured again because he might not be pleased with me that next day. You see how it just gets bigger and bigger and it's just never ending. The reason that I never could rest because I thought God judged my behavior. As long as I believed that, there was no way I could ever rest. Experiences and power encounters do not bring truth. Preaching the true gospel is what brings truth and freedom. Nothing could bring me peace and assurance because I was living in man's paradigm and not God's. I'm not saying that God encounters don't exist. I'm saying we shouldn't go chasing after them. I'm saying that we have everything that we need in Jesus and he's already in us. There's no need to go chasing God chases us with every good thing we need for life. Once I heard and believed, those two things didn't come together immediately. <laughs> I had to hear and keep hearing that God was always pleased with me and he had already given me his righteousness. My need to desperately chase after God went away and I was finally able to rest. I rested in his acceptance and adoration. That was a huge paradigm shift for me. I went from running to and fro to resting in God, in his peace and his assurance. Another paradigm shift I want to mention this morning 
is about moving from formulas to being led by the spirit. I spent a lot of time learning formulas, how-tos and the seven steps and the six steps to this. And in the circles that I was in at that time spiritually, there was, he was called a father in faith, and he had experienced a mighty move of God, a miracle, and he would write down what he did to get that. And then he would teach it to everybody. And we would take notes, and if you did exactly what he did the way he did it, you would get the same thing. So I was taught how to make my faith strong, how to increase my income, how to pray with the sick. Pretty much a formula for everything you wanted from God. <laughs> yes, that car. <laughs> They taught us that if we could just repeat the formula, that we would get the same result. I was taught things like five steps to pleasing God, 11 steps, steps to stronger faith, the five steps to financial dominion, the steps to receiving divine blessing. Do you see? Everything was on me. It straight out of hell. It wasn't what God was doing for me. It was what I was doing for God. Almost, almost a feeling like you're twisting his arm to get him to give you something that he said he's already given. And then if it didn't work for you, because they had an answer for that too, it was because your faith wasn't strong enough. And so you just keep doing those five steps or 11 steps to stronger faith, and then you keep doing the other things. And give more, and give more absolutely. <laughs> Always give more. <laughs> I ate it up. I trusted in all of it because I'm a, I was a doer. <laughs> I was a doer. I'm a busy bee kind of person. I like working. Just tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to rejoice in my results. Oh, boy. Man, oh, man. You could do it, no one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Greg and I are a lot alike. <laughs> we give our all. So performing the formulas properly had become my God. I had become my own God because it was all resting on what I could do. So sneaky and subtle, because it was all presented to me as coming from God, that this is what God desired. So I ended up trusting in my own ability to perform the formulas, and I stopped trusting in God to produce his life in me. I was doing a lot of toiling and laboring, but I was so busy that I didn't notice that my relationship with God was almost not there because my relationship with God became doing those things. And so my time was still all filled thinking of God, but it was exact opposite from what God wanted. It was what I was doing that I thought about all the time instead of what God was doing. 
Ephesians talks about not being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. There is only one gospel. All the others are imposters and try to deceive man into getting their life through their own works. The false doctrines can look good, especially when they're taught in the name of God. Since I've become much more aware of these two different paradigms, I really started talking to Jesus a lot. At the same time that song, Talking to Jesus, came out, everything, it's like God was chasing me. I mean, he was chasing me so I could trust him enough to let go of some of these things that I thought were him. I began asking for his perspective much more often and much quicker. Everything that happened in my life, all of a sudden my eyes became open and I started realizing there's two ways to look at this. There's man's ways and there's God's ways. And instead of just walking around like normal and just accepting what came to my mind, which was my mind, I started asking God about everything. Well, what, what about this, God? What about that? And I mean, it was like he had a lot to say. He wanted me to know what he sees. He wants me to know what he thinks. God is always trying to persuade our hearts with his wisdom and his perspective. Out of our heart flow the issues of life. So which paradigm are we living out of? Whichever one we live out of produces fruit from our hearts. The incorruptible seed of God's life will produce his love and joy and peace. The other paradigm, which is a heart that trusts in itself, is filled with labors and toiling. And look at what that produces. Fear, anxiety, hatred, envy, strife, murder. We see the ultimate display of these two paradigms when Jesus was on the cross. The world's paradigm saw a criminal, a liar, proclaiming to be the son of God. They saw him abandoned by the father he claimed loved him. They saw him shamed and tortured. They saw an orphan. But let's look at God's paradigm in the exact same situation. God saw he and Jesus and the Holy Spirit as one. They were accomplishing their greatest dream, setting man free from death that was beating and destroying them. The Holy Spirit was there assuring and leading Jesus to green pastures and still waters, restoring his soul so he feared no evil. While he's on the cross, he was being comforted. His cup ran over with God's goodness and mercy. There was no abandonment. Man saw Jesus as weak and overcome by death a failure, a fraud, rejected and abandoned by God. Even the disciples were confused and didn't understand what was happening. But God saw man being set free from death, having access to his life and immortality. 
He saw victory over death. He adored Jesus and raised him out of death victorious and saw Jesus clothed in immortality and glory. The paradigm that we see things through changes everything. We see the same situation, but in two opposite lenses. And we have a father that adores us and his good pleasure is to share his paradigm, his perspective, his wisdom to us. As I read the Bible now, I see the two different paradigms everywhere, two opposing mindsets, each offering us a paradigm shift, each offering us the opportunity to go from the way we think to letting God show us his perspective. Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? To take us out of death and into life? Hebrews 12, 11 says that no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but it's grievous. Nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. How does God chasten or discipline us? Oh, we know there's two paradigms there, don't we? <laughs> I'm not going to go into that, though. But the word chasten there, it means to train, correct, instruct, nurture. God chastens us with the truth, with the gospel. He moves us out of our own paradigm and into his. He moves us out of death into life. He moves us out of toiling and working and into rest. Why is that grievous to us? Because it's hard for us to see that we are wrong when we know we are right. How hard is it to move from one place to that other place when you're sure you are right? <laughs> yes, but with God. For those of you who are married, I want to bring this home a little stronger. Think about an argument you're having with your spouse. How is it, how easy is it to even consider that you might be wrong and then admit it? There's just something inside of us that wants to be right. You know why? Because we're living in this corrupted paradigm that believes that we get justified by being right. In those moments, we've switched from God's paradigm where we know we're righteous and innocent, and we all of a sudden lose our minds and we think we have to be right to be righteous and justified. That's how easy it happens. Another reason that uh, we can find God's chastening to be grievous is because we tend to fear the unknown. I know for me, it was hard. Well, if I let go of this, what am I going to be left with? Here, I feel like I've got a relationship with God, but over here, somebody's telling me, but he has so much more for you. But how much more? And what is it going to look like? And what am I going to have with God when I let it go, what I had? But see, what I had was toiling 
and laboring. And I thought God was in that with me. And so it was very hard to let it go. I thought that I was doing the right thing. And it took God's persuasion in hearing the truth over and over and over again. The last time I preached, I mentioned that scripture in Jeremiah, that his word is like a fire that comes and consumes everything that doesn't meet the test. And like a hammer that beats into resistance the most stubborn, beats into pieces the most stubborn resistance. I had a lot of stubborn resistance, not because I was against God, but because I knew I was right. I knew I was right. It looked like it worked for me. That's the scary thing about this. And for the people that are still caught in this system, it looks like it's God. It looks like laboring and toiling is what God wants. And it looks like if you're not doing that, that God isn't pleased with you. I really believe it takes the truth and a revelation from God to open our hearts so that we can receive who God really is and that he did not come for us to serve him. He came to serve us. Big paradigm shift. And I think if you can't let go of the one, the rest can't follow. But God is with us, and he wants to change our paradigm so that we can become just receivers of everything he has for us. Freely, not having to work for it or earn it. God's chastening produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. Peaceable means quietness, rest, set at one again, peace. All those things are good. Righteousness means equity of character, justification, innocence. So God's chastening brings us to a place of resting in peace, in his justification, living in the innocence that he has given to us, resting in being equal in value to who he is. Oh, that was a hard paradigm shift for me. I was taught I was a worm, and I had a scripture <laughs> that said I was a worm. And when I heard that God had created me equal to, in value to him. I just, I got to be honest, I squirmed. It was really hard. And again, kept hearing the truth, kept hearing the truth. God kept giving me more and more revelation. He doesn't stop persuading our hearts till we get it. He loves persuading our hearts. The reason that I held on to my own belief for so long was because I thought my way was giving me a better life than what God had for me. Oh, wow. It hurts to even say that out loud. <laughs> it's like, how far have I come from? It is just amazing. And the, 
most beautiful thing is, is that I didn't toil and labor. I didn't do anything. All I did was hear. And I kept hearing and I kept hearing and I kept hearing the truth. And God just persuaded me and persuaded me until I could let go of all those old paradigms. Because you see, I had been taught that if I did everything right and I followed all those formulas and I gave as much as money as I was supposed to, that I could have everything that I wanted in this world. I wanted that. It looked better to me than not getting everything in this world. And so I didn't want to let go of it. God had to persuade my heart and show me that the things that I thought I wanted in this world didn't give me happiness. They couldn't give me the peace and the love and the joy that I was looking for. I mean, think about it. Now, this doesn't happen to everybody, but it does to a lot of people. The more money you have, the more things you have to worry about. That happens with everything in the world. The more we have, the more you have to spend time dealing in the world. More money, more problems. <laughs> yes, they all all talking to you and it's all coming from the world and it keeps you busy and it keeps you distracted from the one, the one source of life. God's chastening looks like this, like a small child running into the street and the father sees a car is coming. And so the daddy runs out to save the child from death. The child might be angry. The child might be sad because they thought the street was good. They saw it as fun, something to be desired. They thought it would better their life. Chastisement is God saving us from that death. It is God saving us from death. We fight it and we feel sorrowful sometimes because we don't understand. As we get understanding and are able to trust God, his discipline actually becomes a joyous event. And we begin to see it as God's great love for us. That's what's been happening to me for the last month or two. The life of chastisement is so awesome. It's like going from being blind to all of a sudden being able to see. And it happens over and over and over. Every time you ask God, what do you see with this God? What do you see here? What do you see there? It's going from glory to glory, not punishment to punishment. When we resist in our ignorance God's chastisement, that does make it sourful. But it's because we're holding on to the wrong paradigms. God understands. He knows that we're afraid to let go of the old. He understands who we are. And he says, I will continue to show you. I will continue to show you. How long have we been in this church? A long time. It took me a long time to get here because I had spent 45 years in that other belief system. And I thought it had worked because I had the house, <laughs> I had the car, 
He got the promotions. Everything it looked like that system was supposed to give us through God, we got. And then one day recently at a ladies' Bible study, one of the women said, I'm so glad God didn't give me all the things that I was asking for in the world because I would have thought that that was his system because it would look like it worked. And I just kind of double blinked. And I thought, oh my, oh my. And God opened my eyes and he showed me that I had set my affections on the things below and not on the things above. I had no idea that that's what had happened. Wow. It was beautiful. It's amazing. Being set free is just the most wonderful thing. And we can't do it for ourselves. We don't even know what we need to be set from. We're still holding on to it tight. We need God to show us what we need to let go of. He gives us his ability to pry our little tight fingers off of that thing and then persuade our hearts that he has something so much better for us. Ephesians 4.13 Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. That's why we have problems, because it's crafty and subtle. Last week, Greg preached a beautiful message on what keeps us from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that was my question as I had seen all these uh, times I had been deceived and I began saying, why didn't I know? Why didn't, and I would say, what's wrong with my knower? Why didn't my knower know these things were lies? Why did I jump after this stuff and go for it in such a wholehearted way? And it's because I did not have the faith that came in Jesus and what Jesus came to tell us about the Father and about us. And knowing the promise of immortality keeps us from being tossed in, to and fro. Here's the tricky, crafty part. I knew I had immortality. I had known that for 50, 60 years. But in this other system that I was in, once you got saved, you pushed aside the cross and resurrection because those things were already done and accomplished. And now you set about getting all the things that God wanted you to have in this life. The car, the house, the promotion. Mm. And so the very thing that was going to help my knower know what was truth from the lie, I had pushed it aside thinking 
that was already a done deal. And so the, and it was, but the very thing that I needed to be meditating on to be set free from all the deceptions, I had pushed aside. I didn't have the faith of Jesus. I did to a certain extent, but I believe that God punishes. I didn't know how much I was adored. I didn't know that God had gotten down on one knee in adoration of me. I didn't understand that he had created me equal in character to who he was. I didn't understand any of those things. I thought I was a worm. I thought I constantly made him unhappy and let him down. So you see the very things that I needed to know the truth from the lie, I wasn't being taught till I got here. Really amazing the difference that it makes when you don't know and you're not living out of the faith of Jesus and meditating on the resurrection and immortality, you won't know the truth from the lie. The faith that I was relying on was my faith. They taught me to get strong faith, and that was the faith that I was living by. Not Jesus coming to give me his faith, I didn't know faith was supposed to perform something in me. I thought I had to come up with the faith and my faith performed something. It was almost, and I'm going to say almost, that's being kind. It was exactly like this, that you had your faith and your faith was, let's say, $100. And you went into your God store with your $100 of faith and you gave that to God and said, here's my best, and then he gave you back based on what you gave him. That is what it was like. It was that, not just like it, it was exactly that. Even though I didn't see it at all. Yes. <laughs> so now I'm gonna talk about, in the last few minutes, I'm gonna talk about when it's easy to get tricked. When we experience tribulation, it is easy to feel lack. Lack is a big red flag. When you feel lack, that is your sign to know something isn't right. You're in the wrong paradigm if you're feeling lack. <laughs> when that feeling of lack comes upon us, lust begins to rise up, and there comes the temptation to give ourselves life. Now, I want to give you all uh, a, a feel, uh, a, an, ex uh, an example of lack. Um, is there anybody here that would let me use your cell phone for a moment? Now, our cell phones can be very precious to us, right? You don't want to go too far away from them. If you lose your cell phone, 
can I use the word that you're going to feel lack, maybe? Oh, yes. What if I took Heather's cell phone and I did that? How would that feel? And we can laugh at Heather, but what if it's Linda or Mo? We would all feel a horrible sense of lack. Right, Carter? <laughs> and justice. <laughs> okay, so that gives us a feeling. I'm going to give it back to you so you don't feel like. <laughs> Aren't you glad you didn't give me yours? <laughs> that just gives us a little bitty taste of what that feeling is and how easy we can go from feeling just fine and resting to all of a sudden we're feeling lack and we want to do something had heather thought i was going to smash her phone i'm sure she'd have run up here and tried to give herself life by getting it back before i could hit it see how easy it happens but when we're in constant communication with God and when we feel that lack we feel it come up in us that's when we talk to Jesus and say what do you see here we don't need to pretend we could say hey I feel lack and I'm miserable here and this is why and God will come back and he'll show us his paradigm and show us that he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness even cell phones, although that one might be a little, God may need to persuade us a little longer. <laughs> they do not have eternal, I hope they don't have eternal life. <laughs> there we go. You all can all give me your cell phones after the service. <laughs> the faith that comes in Jesus that Greg talked about last week assures us that we lack no good thing. If you don't lack anything, you don't have to chase after anything. If you don't lack anything, you don't have to work at pleasing God. You don't have to chase. Hmm? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is right. It actually, the faith of Jesus shows us that we have been given abundance. We already have everything we need. It shows us the life that God gives to us immortality that can never be taken away this faith and truth is God's paradigm it is who he is it gives us peace when we desire to have life during times of tribulation we're going to take a real quick look at the cross again and put those two paradigms side by side the world's paradigm saw Jesus as a criminal and a liar, proclaiming to be somebody that he wasn't. They saw him abandoned by God. He was shamed and tortured. Jesus was in the midst of tribulation. Jesus was being tempted to believe he lacked. You remember? Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. He was temp being tempted to believe he lacked. He heard the crowd chanting and mocking him. He heard them maligning God to his heart. Where is your God now? Oh, man, 
that was a temptation. You lack, and where's God now? You better do something for yourself. And isn't that what they said next? Come down off that cross in your own strength if you're the son of God. There is the tribulation. There is the temptation for Jesus to believe he lacked. The lie offered that God would not take care of him. The need for him to get life from someplace else other than his father because his father wasn't going to help him. That was a temptation. A false doctrine was being offered to Jesus on the cross. Lust was attempting to be born in his heart. Do it yourself. Get life from your own works. Come down off that cross. Lack tries to make us desperate to find a solution to the problem that we are having in our own strength. But Jesus turned to God for the faith. He allowed God to show him that he lacked no good thing. He allowed God to show him abundance, lead him to green pastures and still water. He allowed God to restore his soul and showed him paths of righteousness. God's rod and staff were comforting Jesus, even while he was on the cross. The table prepared for Jesus in the presence of his enemies his head being anointed with oil, and his cup running over. God's goodness and mercy following him all of his life, and God promising him immortality. And Jesus responded to the faith and the promise of immortality from the Father. It kept Jesus from being tossed to and fro by another doctrine. And Jesus responded to the Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Glory to God. He was saved by the Father and raised from the dead three days later. Romans 8.29 says, Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. You are the many brethren. That's talking about you. What the Father did for Jesus, he's done for you. He has shown us the way to live in the faith and the promise of immortality. So we don't have to be tossed to and fro, just as Jesus wasn't. When tribulation comes and you feel lack, God wants to show you his abundance that he's given to you. His rod and staff are there to comfort you and set you free from fear. He wants to take you to green pastures and still waters also. He has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He will show you that your cup runs over in abundance. God's goodness and mercy are with you in the tribulation. And you have God's promise of immortality. Hallelujah. Everything that the Father and the Holy Spirit gave to Jesus on the cross, is accompanying you, living inside of you, ready to show you his goodness and fullness in each tribulation. So 
So when lack comes knocking at your door, when it tries to put fear in your heart, when it tries to tell you that God isn't there, when it tells you get life in your own strength, God is right there with you. Start talking to him. Say, I feel lack. Show me what you see. And he will be right there, reminding you that he has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. He's giving you his life, who he is, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, everything needed in that situation. And he has shown you his immortality that swallowed up death in a human body. We already have seen it happen in Jesus. This life is your life. It's your life. His immortality is your immortality. He is faithful to keep you. You don't have to keep yourself. Father, we thank you that we don't need to fear being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You have shown us your paradigm that fills us with your life and love and peace and joy. You have given us the faith of your son and the promise of immortality, and that keeps us. Thank you for your goodness, Father. Thank you that you already are inside of us, leading us each step, no matter what we face, that you have already conquered sin and death for us. Amen.